This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, some new products through the non-TSO pipeline. And we learn about a rusty pilot save. Also, new airplanes, some cool ones at that. And changes on Capitol Hill and at the FAA. All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts. Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. All right, David. Well, uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Ian. Do you have any New Year's resolutions that involve aviation? I do. I'm I'm close. I'm like an hour and a half from getting my uh, R44S for a sign off. So yeah, you went and did a little flying over the holidays. I did. I did. It was my first R44 kind of hands on, and it was great fun. I'm so envious. Yeah, it was really really good fun. I like that air that uh, helicopter. I've been in them uh, several times for photos. Oh yeah, and it's a real stable platform. Yep. And now that I've had a big about three hours of uh, helicopter lessons, you know, I know a lot more about what's going on, but I'm still not able to figure it all out. It's uh, it's hard. I mean, there's no question. And every one thing about helicopters, I think, uh, whatever, my 50 hours of helicopter time here talking, is yeah. that um, each one is totally different. Right. And so each one's kind of a new challenge and great. It's great fun. Uh, that's so cool. What about you? All right. So right before the year ended, I went over um, and looked at my books and looked at my logbooks, and I really wanted to dedicate myself this year to getting my instrument rating. So a number of years ago, I had passed. Passed the written test. No, oh, nice. All, yeah, but it, but of course, it expired now. Okay, common, common story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and you know, I write about this kind of thing. So, I want to experience. I want to walk the walk. Okay. You know, not just talk the talk. I want to walk the walk. So, I'm going to do it. So, you did a little bit before the end of the year. A little I bit did. of training. How, I did. How's it going? It's going really well. And um, you know, the, the new technology that we have in some of our aircraft really makes it a little bit easier for us mm. and a lot safer as well, which we'll talk a little bit about that later in the show. Yeah. But um, uh, it's going really good. I've been mean, trying to do the practice in a 182. Nice. So it's a good, stable platform. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to put it all together. I really, really want to do it. So a lot of us are envious around the office this morning. Maybe not of your lack of sleep, but of uh, <laughs> of your your weekend job here. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, the 9th. So uh, last night, big football game, right? Yeah, it was the national championship, the NCAA national championship in Atlanta. And of course, you know, and our podcast listeners know, I have ties to Atlanta because I, you know, yeah. basically grew up there. Yeah. So yeah, I was on the field uh, for the game. I was uh, taking pictures for United Press International, and it was a great game. It was very exciting, and I. Think think as a football fan, people really got their money's worth. Yeah. But for folks who haven't paid attention to it, people are telling me that it was one of the better games that they've seen. That's awesome. Uh, Alabama versus the University of Georgia. And, you know, big Southern deal matchup, SEC, yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, the I guess the, the main tie into general aviation would be they do shuttle around on, you know, general aviation aircraft. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> but really, it's just uh, so if you want to see a picture of what David Toulouse looks like, if you're a listener, you got to uh, go and watch at the end of the game uh, him in Nick Saban's face. That's 
that's the scrum right. trying in, to get that in shot. The scrum. And yeah. that and that's a challenge, you know, yeah. and uh it's one of those things that you're on autopilot. It's hmm. like you're a pilot and you're on autopilot and you know how to do things and you know it's, it goes by rote. It's uh same thing uh at the end of the game, you know, you got to get the shot, you got to get it with the coaches or you know the star quarterback or defensive player whatever it is. Yeah. But yeah, I uh, I understand. I, I got a little FaceTime on TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, cool. Let's talk about flying. I want to start the new year on a happy story. One happy story. Right, right. <laughs> Two-parter. Right, right. uh, one happy story. A heartwarming story on both accounts, let's call it. It is. Yeah. Um, and this is the the use, actually, of dogs in aviation. You can't go wrong with dogs in airplanes, No, right? and dogs like to fly. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that cats like to fly that much, but yeah. dogs do. <laughs> and so a border collie named Felix spent a night perched precariously on a seaside cliff over in Oregon. And so the interesting thing about this, Ian, is that there was a volunteer fire chief who's a private Pilot and also a drone pilot. Okay. And so um, some folks were looking to him for some help on, you know, locating the dog, the border collie. And and they initially asked him to, to you know pilot his 172 over there, I believe. And he said, you know, in this kind of situation, the drone might be a better tool. Hmm. So they fired up the drone and uh, went looking for the pooch who had spent the night on this outcrop. But uh, they did find the dog That's with awesome. the drone technology and, you know, again, the right tool for the job. And so all was well. That was, that was a neat little story. Jim Moore wrote that. That is neat. So uh, the other part of this, the, heart, the other heartwarming part, I should say, not necessarily a great story, though, is um, a, a eulogy uh, of a dog that um, helped at this airport in Michigan. Oh, yeah. And a lot of folks, um, a lot of our podcast listeners might know about Piper, a canine that was um, – at the Cherry Capital Airport in Michigan. Hmm. And Piper was known for his oversized goggles that he wore yeah. and his special vest and everything. Yeah. And really trained uh, with his handler and owner, Brian Edwards. And the, the cool thing about that was um, Brian had this idea to use a canine, a border collie, to scare off waterfowl at the airport and, uh, and, and other wildlife, basically in a humane effort. And it picked up a lot of steam, and they made an Instagram page, and Piper had 94,000 followers. Oh, my gosh. And if you're into social media, he had over a million likes on different things that oh, they wow. posted. Wow. And the dog, it was so cute. I mean, it's a yeah. sad story. He did pass away from cancer, from prostate cancer. Which I oh, did my not, gosh. I did not know dogs could get that. I didn't know either. It, it is sad, but it's uplifting in a way because there's been outpouring of support, and it was just a really neat program. Yeah, it was. And, you know, the picture that uh, that Brian took is just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it is like I don't think this picture could get any more American if you like set fireworks off in the background and give the dog a hot right, dog because right. it's like he's in his vest with his American flag patch on and the flag behind him and his little coat in front of a C-130. Yeah, and it's, it's like, awesome. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's really good. And, and, and you know, they were um, widely recognized in the city that they lived in. People would stop them on the street and mm. do pictures. And I should mention that Piper was the Grand Marshal for the National Cherry Festival that they have up there. And, and, and like I said, folks would stop these guys on the street, and they were just big ambassadors to uh, aviation. And Piper would go to schools and, and let kids know about you know aviation and different jobs they could have, and they talked up aviation. That's cool. Yeah. Really, really we're nice. We're sorry to lose Piper. and We, we are uh, sorry for, for Brian Edwards' loss, but, you know, life does go on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of uh, new tech pieces that we want to make sure that we get through. There's going to be, because we haven't done the show in a couple of weeks and uh, because a lot of stuff just seemed to happen at the end of the year this year, surprisingly, uh, we got a, a, a litany of stuff that we're going to go through in a couple of different stories. But the first is going to be this non-TSO piece. Specifically, uh, level the level out. the level bomb yeah and uh, for folks who don't know what that is just a quick overview the thing looks like a little bomb yeah and it, it like it, a bomb bomb right they call it the bom the it bomb is. yeah but it's interesting in because it takes us some of that same kind of technology that you would see from alternators that would pop out mm. um, and and generate some electricity so it's got like a wind vane yeah that helps drive this but it has adsb in it mm. correct mm-hmm. and it's also got attitude and things like that yeah it'll, you'll get uh, backup position data uh, attitude, angle of attack, and traffic and weather. They call it a broadcasting really outer neat. module. Yeah, really cool. So you just hang it on the wing. Uh, really easy installation and um, get the information right there in the cockpit. Uh, so it's very, very cool stuff. And next, we want to talk about the Trig. This is uh, everyone knows Trig because they just actually got into the 
certified autopilot world had the, been experimental, right? They've been experimental for a long time and yeah. high quality units and, and at a reasonable price and people really talk them up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they've come out with a couple of new audio panels. That's fantastic. Yeah. The TMA-44 and the Enhanced TMA-45. So those will help people out, and hopefully the prices are low. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Meant to be sliding replacements for the Garmin, and um, really cool to see them continue to branch out into that uh, certified world. Finally, speaking of Garmin, we, I think, have talked about this one earlier. Boy, they've been busy. They really have. It's the GDL-82. This is a really, I think, critical piece of ADSB out certified gear that I, I think a lot of people are going to go for. Okay. Uh, this is this really low price, easy installation ADSB mm-hmm. that they have. So folks who just want minimal compliance, uh, this is an option you get for the them. Garmin, is it called the GDL82, is that what you said? Yep. That's going to be great. And is it about two grand? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's uh, about 1800 bucks. actually. That'll work. Yeah. You know, we talk about this all the time about the price of our aircraft and, you know, depending on how, what year model you have it could be a substantial investment but really two grand is probably about what you would pay for a regular propeller overhaul not a uh, constant speed propeller but just Mm. even a fixed pitch Mm -hmm. so you're thinking of that in those terms or basically you know another slide in radio maybe slightly used yeah to me it sounds affordable yeah and it's meant to be an easy installation to keep the entire price down so there are those people i know who continue to wait for price drops it's hard to imagine i honestly getting much cheaper than than that right i mean maybe uh you know a hundred bucks here or there but it's like uh, I think, you know, if you're going to equip, the, the time is now. Well, you only have about two years. Yeah. So the clock is ticking on yeah. that. Yeah. And a good shop, you're looking at at least, I would say, four or five months out anyway. As a backlog? Yeah. That's, so that leads to something else, which is like, you know, avionics technicians might be busy, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Drive the economy. Absolutely. I like it. So, you know, who else is going to be busy is an engine overhaul shop, thanks to our old oh, 150. Right. Uh, this is a really cool story. Uh, with a very happy ending. So you remember Nate Abel. Nate Abel, the Nate Abel Flying Club out of Texas. Yep. They were the ones who won AOPA's 150. This was, uh, we donated them to get a club to start up. Uh, right. A bunch of clubs enter. This is a contest, Nate Abel Club, which has a, an incredible story, ended up winning. And it's named after yeah. Nate Abel. Nate Abel. Who was a, a mentor to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the whole deal, I think, with that uh, Flying Club, but going by memory, is that it's all about young people. Young yeah. people started it. Yeah. Young people are making it happen. And so uh, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of enthusiasm there. Yeah. So you know, the you can fly program, it's not just the uh promotion and the aid of uh to get more flying clubs and to get uh, more people into flying clubs. It's also rusty pilots. Yes. Right? So Nate Abel brought two of these things together. Obviously, the flying clubs up and running, they've been very active, but they did have at least one very rusty pilot who had quite the experience. Yeah, he did. And um, first of all, the I, I think the airplane's name is worth mentioning is Tweety Bird, right? Yeah, yeah that's what they na- nicknamed it, yeah. And so we have a rusty pilot that went through the program, got back in the air, mm-hmm. was on a solo. Yeah, I believe his first solo. After being unrusty. For decades. Say, after being a polished pilot. Yes. <laughs> unrusty. <laughs> so first solo in decades, like three decades. Yeah. And the engine had a valve problem, an exhaust valve problem, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, no damage to the airplane. Uh, kudos to them. But I believe there was a, a landing involved at a, another airport. Yeah. But all's well that ends well. Now, uh, give us a pilot's name. His name is Wendell Almbaugh. That's a hard one to say, yeah. so I hope I got it right. Almbaugh. 77 years old. Right. Uh, Wendell is. And it's just incredible. I love his quote about this situation. I mean, can you imagine? First of all. It's hard for any pilot who hasn't had one to imagine an engine failure. Scary. I've had one, and it yeah. is scary. Scary, yes. right? Yeah. Um, so now imagine you haven't been flying for, th- for 30 years. For a long time. And you're in someone's like borrowed uh, you know, yes. airplane. Yeah, you the, the club flying airplane. club that just was established. Yes. You know, and there's all this, all this going on in your mind. Yeah. So... 77 years old, uh, has this engine failure. It's just incredible. Total uh, but he was positive cool, outcome. He was cool, calm, and collective. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he knew he could land the airplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the quote. Um, so he says, my initial reaction when the engine started running rough was to ask myself, what did you forget to do? Yeah. <laughs> and as a rusty pilot, you're thinking, what, uh, yeah. there's something on the checklist I didn't do. Yeah, which there's only a few things you, you can know, possibly do at a 150 anyway. Right. But, yeah. The fuel would be one. But, yeah. but it was not his fault at all. Yeah. And um, the very unusual circumstances 
experiences. And I believe I talked to a couple of other people that told me uh, from other stories that when an exhaust valve failure happens, that it's almost an immediate total loss of power. Yeah. You can't just cripple along like you can with an intake. Yeah. Someone was telling me that. Yeah. Oh, hey, by the way, we should we should clear the record on this. 40 years. He was out for oh my. 40, Great. 40 plus years. That's amazing. And he's back. And yeah. there's another side to the story, Ian. The um, Nate Abel Flying Club put out a call for some help, for yeah. some financial help. Yeah, because they knew they needed to full overhaul right. that engine. And they recently put on their social media that they purchased a 172. That's great. So, they're, so the they're, club's going to grow. Yeah, the yeah. Cl- club is going to grow. Yeah. And um, and it, so there's a silver lining to that. Yeah. And one thing I got to say about this story that's sort of a, a second-tier piece of this is that they've had that airplane for about a year, mm-hmm. but 500 hours on In one year? Yeah. That's a, a lot of people flying. And it's fantastic. That is good. Yeah, really fantastic stuff. All right, so I said we had a litany of stuff. We're going to run through these now with new airplanes. So new, new year, airplanes and new airplanes. Year, right. Yeah, some really cool stuff. Uh, let's start with one that's close to you, the Vulcan. So the Vulcan Air, this is a Cessna 172 killer, the, mm. the way it was presented to us. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I talked to the folks at uh, AirVenture when it was uh, introduced to the American market. This airplane, Ian, is a four-person um, high-wing aircraft, single engine, but it has a constant speed propeller. Okay. So it's like a 172, but it's got more performance. Mm. And it's built really stoutly because I learned that in Europe, a lot of pilots don't land on airports. They land off airports on like grass strips because it's less costly. Oh. So this plane is built very stoutly. And the key to this whole deal is that it's going to sell for $100,000 less than a new 172 or a new Piper Archer. Hmm, promising. So pretty good for the training uh, crowd there. Yeah. And for maybe for some colleges and flight schools thinking about moving up and maybe getting newer um, aircraft. Yeah. And this air, airplane also has a Garmin panel. It's IFR airplane. Nice. And I think students well, sounds will like a enjoy deal it. these days. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. try to fly it. Yeah. And uh and you know, take a little test flight and see what's up with that. Yeah, and we should say, I mean, it's built in Italy, but they do have an American distributor, right? Right, in so Florida. American support. So. And the airplane has been around and certified in Europe for a long time. Mm, very so cool. So that's good. Yeah, very cool. Um so a little more, let's go a little more crazy out into the future here. Uh this is one that we reported on a couple of weeks ago and maybe you've seen it around the Surefly. This is what do you call this? It's not so much an aircraft. It, I mean, it, it is an aircraft. It's like a it's like a ginormous drone. Okay, I guess. <laughs> but but it's for humans to be inside of. Okay, so, so a, a passenger carrying drone. So now we're getting into the Uber world, yeah, basically. It is. it is. Yeah. Okay. There's some possibilities for this thing, though. Yeah. So now this is a. They, it's hybrid electric. Um, eight rotors, two seats. Two hundred thousand dollars target price now. Yep. That's the target price. We don't know what will happen. Yeah. Um, scheduled any day now to make its first test flight. All right. One thing that I think is really interesting about this is um, it, it's, you know, where they're hoping to really come out big is the Consumer Electronics Show. Yeah, so, which is happening this week as we record the podcast. It is this week in, yeah. in Las Vegas. So, you know, not so much like Oshkosh or Sun and Fun. It's like, no, they're looking to the broader consumer market. That's interesting yeah. way to market that. So this is like a quadcopter, and then the engine arms, I guess, if you will, fold down. Mm. So it looks like it's it's sort of a compact-looking device. So that you could basically fit it in your driveway or wherever it is you might want to go. That would be cool. Yeah, neat. I, I would like, I'd like to get one. Um, one that I think, so whether or not that's going to happen, who knows? One that will happen, I think we can pretty much say for sure, that has been rolled out, um, and maybe you saw some video of this, just phenomenal, phenomenal stuff, is this Strato Launch. The Strato Launch aircraft, this is a gigantic air, aircraft. And it's um, from the folks at Scale Composites, I guess, that mm-hmm. were, you know started out with this type of research. The milestone was that, that the aircraft taxied. Yeah, that was uh, and which you wouldn't big. think is a big deal, but in this case, it's a big airplane. Yeah, and so um, yeah, I wrote a little something on that, and if I'm just going by memory now, but I believe that the wingspan was uh, longer than we were talking about college football earlier. I think yeah. the wingspan is longer than a college football field and the end zone. Could you imagine? <laughs> Three hundred and eighty-five feet. Yeah. Three hundred eighty-five feet, and it's a dual fuselage design. Yes, and the the. The pilots are supposed to be in one side and the instrumentation in the other fuselage. Mm. 
And then the middle of the aircraft is uh, reinforced, and that's where it's sort of a mothership for uh, basically a low-Earth orbit spacecraft. I see. Okay, so that's where we're going. This is, you know, scaled. Lots of folks in California have been and out west have been involved with that, obviously. But uh, in this particular case, Paul Allen, um, who you may know from the Microsoft days, was involved. Interesting fact you have here in the story. So... Uh, Boeing 747 has four engines, right? Yeah, and this guy has six. Six. <laughs> and Incredible. He uses, uses a Boeing 747 engines plus two. Yeah. I love the quote on this one as well. The So they had a low-speed taxi test, which was just kind of going down the runway, um, and that the pilot, Joe Sweat, said that the trial was really interesting. Quote, unquote, really interesting. <laughs> I can imagine. What does that mean? Uh, I think he might have been a little scared. Uh, you think so? Because it's like <laughs> usually these test pilots, like the quotes are like, oh, it was a successful test and no surprises or anything else. But this one is like, hmm, that was interesting. I wonder what the turning <laughs> radius is on that bad oh boy. Oh, my God. It's gigantic. It's just a beast. But they had their sights set on further and, you know, sort of space exploration. And this is going to get the, the vehicles out there. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a really interesting concept. It really is. The strato launch. Yeah. So um, now to go to another one that, eh, will it happen? Won't it happen? I, I would say the chances just went up a little bit. This is the SST, the super passenger supersonic transport, yeah. um, which typically, you know, has been called the Arion. Uh, in recent years, that's the company that's been working with it. Well, they have a new partner that uh, might actually put it over the edge. That's right, Ian. And well, first of all, Lockheed Martin yeah. has been developing it and working with NASA. And, um, and and it's a 12-passenger Mach 1.4 business jet. Yeah. Now, a real quick question for you is that I thought that the stumbling point for this supersonic aircraft was the, the sound. Yeah, that's always been my understanding. And, um, you know, if you go into their site, they kind of talk about that and how they can basically reduce the signature. And I think that's partly why they're working with NASA. But there's still some questions there, I think. Did you ever ride on the Concorde or write about it or anything? I didn't. I got to sit in it once at Oshkosh. That's Did the you? closest I ever got. Wow, that was yeah. such a sexy-looking aircraft. It's very cool. I, I saw um, back in Atlanta when I was at the paper, I documented that aircraft landing there. Mm. And so that was the SST, mm-hmm. basically, supersonic yeah. transport. Yep. Now, the question to me is, is the market ready for something like that? What will it do? Do people want to go that fast and and that far? Yeah. So that's I, the question. I think, you know, I mean, you look at how many uh, Boeing business jets there are, 747s even, lots of 737s, um, Airbus business jets. It's yeah. like when you start talking about that sort of big money, there are a few super wealthy kind of royalty heads of state uh-huh. that, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think they would be customers. That's um, interesting. They're not going to build 100 a year, but it's like if they make four or five, that's, okay. a, that's a good year, That I think. makes sense then yeah. to use it at that kind of a high level um, and go with, you know, taking care of business around the world because, you know, the traveling public – I think they like to get more, you know, they get on smaller aircraft, more, yeah. more you know, shorter haul, yeah. uh, more economical for the airlines, basically, to operate. Yeah. It's a yeah, cool-looking right. airplane. It's yeah, just a, it is like very a, cool. like a long needle, you know. Yeah. That's right. Uh, like an old fighter jet, like a uh, like an old uh, what it's starfighter or something like that. Very, it's a very cool aircraft. Yeah. All right. Last top story. The thing we want to talk about is um, some changes uh, up in uh, Washington, up in our neck of the woods. Right. Two retirements. One sort of term is over. One it's about to be over. That are going to be consequential to aviation in the future. Uh, the first being uh, Bill Schuster. Right. Bill Schuster, um, and, and as our podcast listeners will probably remember, you know, he brought up the idea of privatization. Now, Schuster's a pilot, right? Uh, no, he's, oh, not, he's not. As far as I know. Yeah, he's not. But uh, he wanted this privatized air traffic system to be kind of his legacy. Okay. But his term as committee chairman in the House is coming to an end. And uh, he decided to to not run for re-election. He's right. had a couple of really close fights and I, I think hard-fought battles, even in the right? primary over the past couple of terms, and uh, so yeah, decided not going to run for re-election. Well, that's significant for us because it might mean that that whole ATC privatization idea uh, might not have enough steam to move forward. Now, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know yet. But that is one thing that could happen. Yeah, he was certainly the champion of it, uh, in the House at least, and so I suppose you could naturally say that maybe it won't happen now, but, I mean, he's got most of a year to uh-huh. still continue to push this, uh, you know, this proposal. So um, I, I don't think we know yet what's going to happen there. 
And uh, following up on that, you and I were talking just before the podcast that we have actually have, I don't know if we're going out of order, but we have a new FAA administrator coming on board. We do. And uh, and also we have an FAA administrator, Michael Huerta, leaving. Yeah, uh, we, do, we do. We do. Uh, Michael Huerta, who um, I think by all accounts has been a really, really good FAA administrator. Um, he's uh, always been uh, listened to our concerns at AOPA. Yeah. Um, has, has tried to... Um, I think understand general aviation and its needs. Um, has had a great re- working relationship with Mark Baker. He said he said he learned a lot about general aviation that he didn't know yeah. by working with Mark Baker and yeah. AOPA and a lot of the other folks. The um, other thing is that you know uh, the FAA has has become a lot more touchy feely in the past couple of years mm-hmm. under Huerta's leadership. Mm-hmm. And we just finished talking about non TSO equipment and uh, moving on board with that. And I think that's something that would not have happened without you know someone like Huerta helping push that along yeah so yeah there's going to be you know there's lots of things that uh are kind of up in the air now i think uh, based on new leadership non-tso is a great example uh the support for basic med you got the fbo issue right uh, which is you know solely an faa issue at this point you know you've got the implementation of part 23 and how that's going to be applied so there's there's lots of big issues i think yeah that this new administrator is going to have to deal with and, and actually, one thing that, uh, that Mike Huerta said uh, that um, when we were, uh, Dan wrote a story about Dan Namowitz, he said, don't step into this job thinking you have all the answers. Yeah. That's words to live by. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a constant learning curve on yeah. that. So in the, in the closing weeks of uh, Huerta's term as, as administrator, he invited Mark Baker down to his office in D.C., and uh, they sat and had a chat. And so because of that, where is uh, going to be our guest this week? He's going to be on the podcast. It's a really candid conversation. And Mark asked some really good questions. Michael, on behalf of AOPA and our members, I want to thank you for taking the time to you know, speak with us one last time as the FAA Administrator. And uh, I've always appreciated how you kept your open door for general aviation, AOPA particularly. And under your management, the FAA has seen a number of changes that have benefited our pilots, uh, ATC modernization, basic med, compliance, and certification, as well as CSO reforms. General aviation is also safer today than ever before. So in recognition of that, weeks ago, the AOPA Board of Trustees recently passed a resolution acknowledging your contributions. We presented that with you at the Golden Eagle Award. The resolution thanked you, and I quote, distinguished, dedicated, visionary service as the FAA Administrator that has directly and materially increased safety, efficiency, and affordability of general aviation in the United States. Thank you for your service, and we'd like to discuss a few of your accomplishments, and uh, by the way, point out AOPA has never recognized anybody else as a leader of the, F- of the FAA. And thanks to you once and for all in our nearly 80 years of history for what you've done for general aviation. But what have you learned about general aviation in your time here at, at the FAA? Well, first, let me thank you for uh, the resolution and for the award. But, it, you know, I, I almost feel like I can't claim credit for where we've been because we've done it together. It, this has been such a wonderful partnership between the agency and the aviation industry, AOPA and GA. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I came to the agency, it's been seven and a half years now, um, I didn't know a whole lot about general aviation. But it's half of our controlled operations. It is huge numbers of pilots. And it is something that is uniquely American. And that is what makes it so special. You know, uh, what we think about uh, in aviation is we think about a global industry. We tend to think of the commercial airlines and the glamour of it, sometimes the drudgery of it, (laughs) but uh, what we have in GA is something that is very special uh, because it is something that I think fundamentally reflects American values of freedom, American values of mobility, and for us, it is important that we recognize that general aviation is where a lot of innovation takes place. And that is so critical to the long-term evolution of aviation and the aerospace industry generally. Thank you for seeing it that way. We see it much the same way with general aviation, how important it is, and yet how unique it is, and how the rest of the world looks with envy upon our U.S. airspace as it relates to general aviation. So thanks for doing that. And well, one of the other outcomes I've seen in my four and a half years at AOPA, and almost nearly aligned with your time, has become a lot safer. Why do you think we've become safer in general aviation? 
You know, it's um, general aviation, it, for a number of years, uh, we had made great progress in reducing the fatality rate. And then we, it, it kind of plateaued for a little bit. But I think that uh, the general aviation joint safety effort that we have done with the agency and all of the associations and the industries that support general aviation, I think has been absolutely critical. What we've learned is that we really have to focus on very specific things to help pilots and support pilots making good decisions uh, to ensure the safety of the system. We've had focused efforts on weather. We've had technological deployments that have dealt with things like controlled flight into terrain. And we have really focused on what can we do to bring new technologies into the cockpit that uh, will save lives. And so I, I don't think there's any one thing that we would point to, but it's really been a collaborative effort where we have focused on the scope of general aviation in its entirety and how can we do things in different parts of the spectrum, all of which will have the benefit of making general aviation safer. It's still not perfect. There's still more that we need to do, and so we've got to stay focused on what we can do to always make the system safer. So I think, uh, you know, as I recall one of our earlier meetings about the uh, general aviation inventory, you know, mm -hmm. the average 45-year-old airplane out there, yeah. and I know uh, you and your staff were uh, remarked on that. And then I saw action, which I give you credit for the leadership on that, on the non-TSO. How do we bring technologies into these really good older airplanes that can add to safety? So I thank you for that. And I think we're at the beginning of that process. I think there's lots of new technologies to help generators. What do you think? Well, I think that's right. And I think that uh, the hurdle we had to get past as the agency is thinking about certification as finding something that is going to always work, always uh, have backups, and we're we were looking for a level of perfection in bringing new technology in that was greatly driving up the cost of the deployment there. And I think what we have evolved to is a much more balanced approach. You know, what is the benefit that we can achieve from new technology that is being deployed in these older aircraft, but we also have to balance it with providing incentives for people to actually use it if it's so expensive, then the techno technology isn't going to be worth anything because no one will be able to afford to buy it. And so we have to find that right balance between affordability to ensure widespread use of the technology, but at the same time ensure that it meets high standards of reliability, but that there are appropriate mitigations in place. I think that's right, and I really do appreciate, and I know our pilots do, working with industry, uh, the manufacturers, and working collaboratively with the FAA and the agency to find a way to get those things done at reasonable costs uh, that enhance safety and is at least as good or better than what existed in 1962 or 65 and improve these aircraft. So it's uh, greatly rewarding to see that activity. I know from talking to many of the manufacturers, they're really busy because <laughs> they're selling and building a lot of products. So thank you for that. Well, that's a, that, that's a good thing. I mean, there are a lot of things about the good old days that were really good, but you don't want to lose the benefit of a lot of the advances that we've seen in technology. Uh, because it gives pilots much better situational awareness, and that's good for all of us. That's right. So what do you think about the, the size of the pilot population? Where do you think it's headed? What do you, what do you think about uh, every day as we look at you know, the next 20 years in aviation, general aviation, business aviation, and commercial aviation? I think, in general, the aviation industry is sort of in this place where people view it as something of a select club. And for those of us in the industry, we speak our own language, we all know each other, and we're all very comfortable with that. But I think that, I, I use my own experience. When I was growing up, you know, as a, you know, a kid in inland Southern California, for me, aviation was something that's, you know, based on our family circumstance, was completely out of reach. It was something I was incredibly interested in, but um, I never dreamed that uh, I would actually have the job that, I, <laughs> that I've had for the last few years. And I think that there's still a little bit of that out there. And so the work that AOPA is doing, that others are doing to take aviation outside of the bubble toward uh, people that might not think of developing a passion for aviation or making a career in aviation is extremely important. And we need to do more of that. There needs to be more 
democratization of aviation and use of the airspace. And so I think that's a really important aspect. The unmanned industry um, represents an opportunity uh, in that area because that's applying to a whole universe of people that are very different from our traditional pilots. We also have to address the issue of cost and uh, time to develop skills. There have been great educational programs that have been developed. We've got to get to kids earlier, whether it's in elementary school or at high school. And I think the organizations are doing a great job trying to light that spark, as well as to support uh, programs, uh, STEM-related programs, that are very aviation-focused. We've uh, put uh, in a test phase 29 high schools today in the ninth grade curriculum that there was over 700 of the kids have elected in to an aviation program, which we hope to roll out to hundreds of high schools over the next couple of years and have a 10th, 11th, 12th grade uh, exposure. And we're yeah. pulling the whole industry together to try and get this thing at a, at a level. So we appreciate, uh, and I know we've got an FAA uh, agency person on our little panel that helps us figure out how we're going to roll that out. Exactly. Well, I, I had the opportunity to uh, speak at a two-year college in California that is very focused on the whole scope of aviation careers. But what I was particularly struck by is their philosophy is they want uh, students to be able to experience aviation, get training toward aviation careers, but to leave the place with no debt. What they really want to do is make it affordable to encourage more people, perhaps from more disadvantaged backgrounds, to be part of this great industry. I think it's going to be real possible to do that, and hopefully technologies are going to even take the cost down further. Yeah. Well, time will tell. I want to come back to one policy that um, was probably the biggest thing that our membership has been rewarded by, which is now 25,000 pilots flying under the basic med program, which uh, had been lingering out there, as we know, for 30 years, uh, looking for reforms around that. And I want to congratulate and thank the FAA for being responsive ahead of time and uh, participating with this in the spirit of the law, uh, which was created by Congress. So do you have any thoughts about the basic med? I, I know it was a lot of work to get it done and accomplish that period of time, but uh, from our aviation perspective, it's really driving people back to the airport. What Basic Med represented was a great partnership between us and the agency, but also yourselves and AOPA, the whole general aviation industry. What was really, I think, um, significant was really having very serious and focused conversations about fundamentally what we want to provide are incentives for pilots to take care of themselves, to uh, go through the process of um, investing in what they need to invest in from a training standpoint. Uh, we want them to see their doctor on a regular basis. We want them to take good care of their health. And anything that we could do to make that easier results in healthier pilots and um, a much healthier system overall. And so it was a heavy lift getting there. We, we acknowledge that. I mean, um, as you well know, we had kind of worked through a regulatory process. There were a lot of concerns in other parts of the administration. Uh, so uh, when Congress moved forward on that, Congress was actually quite responsive to engaging with us in the agency so that they could ensure that if they wrote something into law, that it would actually be something that we would implement. And so it was nice when we saw the final language come out that we were able essentially to then take that and put that out as the basis uh, for what we were doing consistent with congressional direction. And so it took us longer than we wanted to, but at the end of the day, I think we got a very good result. And I think the industry will be better off as a result. I think we are very appreciative of that. And I think it is where people often have a view that government can't work. This is an example where all the agency, legislatively, the community, we're going to work together to get a better outcome. So thank you for what you led on that. One other one that you've uh, led yourself, as I believe, is the kinder, gentler compliance philosophy, uh, which probably hasn't gotten as much mention as, as it probably should. But I, here's some statistics I'm not sure you, I was aware of until recently, which is, you know, the legal enforcements have down by 58 percent. Uh, the administrative actions are down by over 80 percent. And I'd like to believe that that is in, in finding with ways to make the system better, make the pilot better, make them understand rather than being somewhat in a punitive mode that might have been more historical. So from uh, seeing those as words and then now seeing the actions result in, in demonstrably lower numbers, what do you think? Well, there's another important statistic, and that is also the time taken to adjudicate a single enforcement action. 
The essence of the compliance philosophy is what we wanted to do was step back and really focus on what are we trying to achieve. What we're trying to achieve is compliance with aviation standards. That is different than wanting to rack up the number, max number of enforcement cases. And so if what you want to get to is compliance with the standard, what you want to create is an environment where everyone's working together to ensure that we're in compliance. A lot of non-compliance is inadvertent, or it may be caused by some degree of confusion as to what the standard actually is, or it might be an honest mistake. Someone might have not been fully aware of what they needed to do in a given situation. In those sorts of situations, what the essence of the compliance philosophy is, is we want the FAA to be working with those entities and individuals to figure out how can we come into compliance and do it as quickly as possible. Yes, there are always going to be those that might be more interested in willful non-compliance. And yes, we still will take enforcement actions, and we have taken enforcement actions in those circumstances. But enforcement is costly, it's time consuming, and at the end of the day, you don't really know whether you're achieving compliance with the safety standard that you're trying to achieve. And so uh, what we really want to focus on is building those relationships and building that transparency to ensure that uh, we're all aligned in focusing on how do we achieve a higher level of safety. Yeah, and I think uh, well done and measured well. One other area that I, uh, I have a great deal of gratitude is around the FBO issue and this transparency and access uh, to these 5,000 public use airports, which has changed because of market conditions and other things. But uh, just recently, the agency issued a basically a, a directional guidebook, if you will, about the right way that the airport sponsors should be managing their job, which I think is the correct way to look at it. And I think it's going to be important for us to have that kind of partnership with the airport sponsors and, sure. and the industry. And But it was nice to see that kind of view about public access and transparency coming out of the agency in a meaningful way. Well, what we wanted to do here was clarify for everyone what the roles and responsibilities of operating a public use airport actually are. Many airport sponsors think of themselves more as landlords as opposed to an actual operator of a public use facility. And uh, what we wanted to make sure through the FBO policy was to make sure that everyone understands that if you are granted a certificate to operate a public use airport, yes, it's a privilege, but it brings with it certain responsibilities. And that means that it needs to be made available on reasonable terms to the public. That's why it is a public use airport. That's why the federal government is willing to underwrite some of the costs associated with that. The question uh, becomes, okay, well, whose job is it to ensure that? And I think we had, in some circumstances, evolved to a situation where an airport sponsor effectively delegated that to their lessee, whether that's an FBO, whether that is some other operator of a different facility. And we wanted to make sure that everyone understands that the sponsor always has the responsibility to ensure that this is being made available on reasonable terms to the public. And it's not a change of policy, it is a statement of what the policies actually are. And by shining the light on this, I think that we'll go a long way toward clarifying everyone's responsibilities, and I think the market will respond accordingly. I think that's right. We like the, the free market works best when there's competition, when people know their responsibilities and fair and transparent, non-discriminatory, reasonable. Those are all kind of basic words. They haven't really changed. It was nice to see them in print. And uh, I think they'll be put to good use in, in those small circumstances where it's needed. You know, and the, uh, the air traffic control has been under a lot of, a lot of different discussions, but the next gen, uh, which I sit on your next gen advisory council, I feel like we're making a lot of progress. How do you feel about the progress made in, in the next gen rollouts? Well, I think we've made a lot of progress. Um, seven years ago, we were in trouble, essentially. We were early in the deployment of the modernization of the technology platforms that controllers use. Uh, we were way over cost and way behind schedule. And we commissioned an overall review, we got everything baselined, and then we have hit all of our targets since then. In the en route environment, all of our major air traffic facilities are now operating on new technology platforms. We're almost completely there in our largest, well, we, we are there in our largest terminal facilities, and we're working our way through our remaining terminal facilities. And you can think of that as building the iPad. 
Now we've been gradually adding more and more applications on top of that. And we have been setting priorities, as you well know, collaboratively with the industry. I mean, a great example is Datacom. The industry asked us to accelerate the timetable, so we took an original concept of deploying Datacom at our largest terminal facilities, top 50, over a three-year period. You asked us, and we responded, and did it in one. But what's great about that is not only did we get it done in one year and ensure that there was a wide network to take advantage of the capabilities of Datacom, but um, as a result of the accelerated timetable, we were able to afford to add seven more terminal facilities to equip with Datacom. So I think a lot of progress has been made. And by the way, this has been going on in a period of time where we've been shut down multiple times. We've gone <laughs> through the sequester. We have had this uh, stop and start on our authorizations and appropriations. So I think that uh, the team here working uh, with the industry and with our technology partners has actually done a very good job of getting NextGen uh, deployed and we're well underway toward delivering capabilities there. I'm very excited about the data common and I think we'll find solutions for general aviation, but even as a general aviation pilot, not waiting to be number 30 to get your clearance, <laughs> uh, as the airliners are now kind of aligning with that and, and hearing about the savings of hundreds of thousands of flight minutes for the airlines, it's a very exciting time to be part of that. Well, yeah, you know, three minutes uh, may not sound like a lot on a single flight, but if you can make that stick and move it across the whole system, you are saving millions of dollars. So what do you think about, you know, the last conversation has been the push to spin off the air traffic control. You know, what problem do you think they're trying to solve? Well, uh, that's a good question. I don't know what problem they are trying to solve, but I think that the problem that needs solving isn't really being talked about. We have been in a debate for a couple of years now about what is the best structure to operate air traffic control. And uh, much has been said about uh, how it operates in other countries or the number of advanced countries that operate in a particular way, um, all of which is fine. What we're not talking about is what are the challenges that we have, what is the FAA being asked to do, and how do we pay for it? And I think the problem that we're trying to solve is one of stability. You know, I mentioned the stop and start nature of our appropriations and authorizations. There is no business that would be able to operate in that kind of an environment. I think we also have to look, though, at the sources of uh, revenues that are available to fund the operations of the FAA. And I think we need to acknowledge that there is some disconnect, if you think of just like the sheer number of unmanned aircraft, who are not contributing a whole lot to the Aviation Trust Fund. You know, how, how do we um, plan for the long-term needs? I think finally, and of particular interest to AOPA and your members, is there is no one anywhere in the world that has a general aviation industry like we have in the U.S. It is just foundational to how we operate our system here. And what we need is a structure and framework that enables us to address two distinct responsibilities that the country expects of the FAA for operating air traffic. The first is, clearly, everyone wants a safe and efficient system. Uh, no one's going to argue that point. But the second thing, and this is unique to the U.S., Everyone wants a basic level of access to air traffic services, whether you're in rural areas, whether you're in small airports. And the FAA has always had the responsibility to do both of those things. The conversation we need to be having is, is that still the right construct that we as a country want to see for air traffic? Personally, I think it is. Then the question becomes, where is it going? Who are the users? What's it going to cost us? How do we pay for it? That's the conversation we need to have. In the course of that conversation, maybe a structure will e emerge that the industry can come together around. But I think that starting with, let's change the structure without talking about the problem you're trying to solve, isn't really addressing the long-term needs of the air traffic system. I agree with you. And the new entrants, whether they be drones or space travel now, which are expected to access the airspace you know, on a daily or multiple times daily in the not too distant future is kind of changing the dynamic of what we think about historically. So your next uh, administrator for the FAA is going to be realigning some of those priorities and resources. What are your words for the next individual leading the FAA? 
two things. I think that you need to approach this job with a fair amount of humility. You do not know, no one without coming here can possibly appreciate the sheer scale and scope of activities that uh, the FAA is involved in on a daily basis. As, even as long as I've been here, I am continually amazed at uh, what our team is thinking about, working on, or what the industry is presenting as a challenge, an opportunity, and something that they would like to work on together with us. And so you need to be a good listener. You need to take the time to understand the scope and scale of what we're doing, but listen to the industry, listen to the people that are here, and create an environment where we can have conversations about how we collectively move forward. I think a mistake that anyone could make is walking in thinking you know the answer. And if you come into this place thinking you have all the answers, this place has a way of helping you understand that's not necessarily <laughs> the case. And so, healthy, healthy way to look at it. Be a good listener. Well, Michael, I, I can't thank you enough personally, professionally, for the time you and I have spent together discussing critical issues to aviation and uh, your willingness to be open-minded, as you said, about that has uh, not gone unnoticed on, on my part. And the part of our members, we feel like uh, we're going to miss you. Uh, and I know um, somewhere over in Park City for a couple of weekends you'll hide out, but uh, I know there'll be something else in your, in your future. Anything you can share with us now about what you're going to be doing in your future? It's still a work in progress. Uh, January 6th, which is my official last day on the calendar, happens to be the start of ski season. Oh. And so um, I'm hoping for a great snow year in the Rocky Mountains <laughs> and uh, the time to take advantage of that. I would like to uh, stay close to the aviation industry, and I'd like to maybe think about putting together a few projects. Maybe there will be an opportunity on the board, and I'd also like to teach. I really enjoy the opportunity to get together with young people, with students, uh, so it's still very much a work in progress. <laughs> uh, I don't know where it'll lead, but um, I'm looking forward to continuing the friendships I've developed. You've got a lot to give. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for Administrator Ward for spending the time, and we, we have to thank him for his service. And he spent five years helping us out. We do appreciate it, and pilots everywhere would like to tip their hat to him. Yeah. All right, so I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Listen, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. We're on iTunes and on the Sporties Takeoff app. All right, thanks. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.